You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Saman, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. As we begin season three of our show, open banking is now well established. An idea that started in Europe has now spread well beyond its borders. From Asia to the Middle East to Africa to both South and North America, the idea of open banking has taken hold. Financial ecosystems everywhere are moving to adopt common, open, shared standards for the secure exchange of financial data. Early adopters often viewed open banking as an exercise in regulatory compliance. Of course, if you've listened to the show before, you know better. Open banking is about so much more than just compliance. Being able to share data quickly and easily, backed up by the customer's consent, has led to an explosion of innovative new financial products, from players old and new. The smartest ones have embraced open banking as they race to embed themselves in our digital lives. Despite this general optimism, the question of how to generate real business value from open banking remains somewhat elusive. Banks invested a great deal in building their open banking interfaces and are now wondering how best to recoup those investments. What markets should they follow? What use cases should they focus on? Answering these questions requires that they reconsider three fundamentals of banking. Value, risk, and trust. These terms have always been important to banks, but cast under the lens of an open ecosystem, they become something much different. In the digital world, consumers can now choose from hundreds of financial providers, and many of the things banks have historically charged for are made free. Being customer-centric in a world like this means something very different than doing so within your four walls. Understanding this transition requires banks to think differently. And that's what our guest is here to help them do. Samantha Seaton is an internationally recognized fintech pioneer, a thought leader on diversity and inclusion, and a champion of financial wellness. She is a non-executive director at Charities Aid Foundation Bank, a founding member of Open 51, and an advisory board member at the investment platform, The Big Exchange. Sam was named 2020's FinTech Woman of the Year at the Professional Advisor Awards, was included in Innovative Finance's Woman in FinTech Powerless for 2021, and also in 2021, was named Open Banking Expo's Pioneer of the Year. Today, Sam is the CEO of MoneyHub, an award-winning powerhouse fintech that provides solutions focused on open banking, open finance, and open data. Sam, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been four years 
since the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK started requiring its nine largest banks to provide data access to third-party startups. Essentially, the dawn of open banking. There, and all across other regulated regions, both in Europe and elsewhere, banks have incurred costs to be in compliance with regulations and are now looking to recoup those costs. To do so, they're exploring how to generate real business value from their open banking investments. So my first question to you is, what is the difference between open banking for compliance and what we're starting to see today? Well, I think we've we've got to take a little step back, actually, because the banks, you're right, they do want to recoup that investment that they've made. But let's just take a step back as to why they've had to make that investment. And that's because of the Competition Markets Authority establishing as a result of the 2008-2009 credit crisis that we all experienced worldwide, that there was too much dominance by too few players in the market for it to be a healthy economy going forward. The banks are needing to change with the times. And, and that's the thing that I see a bit of struggle with. They want to establish value exchange in this new digital economy based with open banking. But I feel that they are looking at doing that the wrong way around. What I mean by that is I'd like them to think about what the value exchange with the consumer is, so their customer, rather than how they can sell anything and everything that they've got to anyone that they feel they can make a revenue stream from. So just take the variable recurring payments, which are are coming into stream now as the last part of the open banking implementation entity's purpose for the UK and Europe on PSD2. And we're already seeing some of the banks wanting to charge for that service. You've touched on a couple of important concepts that are always close to open banking. One is market concentration, and the other is innovation, capital I, innovation. It sounds like you're saying rather than focus on extending existing revenue lines to recoup their open banking investments, Think about what you can do differently. What solutions can you bring to market that are more customer-focused and perhaps really generating revenue in entirely new ways? Do I have that right? Absolutely. I mean, I'll give you a great example of it. When open banking first hit the scenes, I had a, a conversation with one of the CMA9. Given the use of their banking app already, I said to them, you know, you, you could take Amazon on. You could be the new Amazon for the UK and Europe. They looked at me like I had two heads. Any company can make payments now. Any company can do these things. So surely that means, you know, as a bank, you want to look further afield as to what you can do for your customers and how you can delight them and therefore benefit from these new revenue streams. The pressure for banks to innovate is not something that started with open banking, of course. The fintech community has been thriving in the UK and elsewhere for the past several years. And much of the pressure to innovate on incumbent banks has no doubt been driven by competition from those fintechs. Can you think of some concrete examples of where fintechs are thinking out of the box? So, for example, you take Sugi, which actually uses the open banking data to provide you with your carbon footprint against your spend and also your carbon footprint against where you're investing. 
that is something that is of its time. It's needed. It's a great value exchange. It's something that people are wanting more of, not less. You know, they want more of that type of innovation. The other one I, I saw actually which was surprising. They came from our own government pension scheme here in the UK, which is Nest. So it is the largest provider of pensions for the mass market and also for the self-employed because most people, when they're self-employed, literally get just signed up by law into the government pension scheme. There's a massive amount of self-employed people that are very concerned about putting money away for the long term. So what you find is the self-employed have a lot of money in current accounts, which is not helping them, but you can understand why they do that. No one is going to begrudge them wanting to have their rainy day fund a bit higher and not knowing necessarily whether their income will stay stable for the next couple of years. But they lose out in the long term because they don't get the tax benefits. They don't get the long-term gains that can be made via long-term investing. And it is a real shame. So the government was very keen to address this. And we ran a pilot actually for them. And it meant that we asked 400 self-employed people if they would partake in the pilot. And what it meant is you connect up your main spending accounts and your current accounts. And we established your committed spend versus your discretionary spend. And then we established whether your discretionary spend each month had any headroom as an average over the past 12 months. And if it did, we said, would you like to sweep that headroom? Might be 32 pounds, might be 52 pounds, might be 10 pounds. It didn't matter, might be nothing, but it didn't matter what it was. But would you like to sweep that money or half of it into your pension scheme? And as a result, you get these tax benefits and you get the long-term investing horizon for that money. Out of the 400 people, when we first surfaced the first, the very first nudge, we had 10% immediately action the nudge with their you know, face ID or thumbprint and move that money straight there and then off the back of that nudge and that journey into their pension. Done, dusted. They could do it on the train. They could do it when they're sitting on their lounge watching Netflix. It didn't matter when they got the nudge. They could action it there and then. And that's incredibly exciting. And that is, to me, what I'd like to see more of, not less of. Why is it so hard for banks to do that stuff? The way you describe it, that sounds like exactly what banks do. What do fintechs have that banks don't that allows them to innovate so effectively? My feeling is it's the aversion to risk to be able to actually take the risk that perhaps the Nest government pension scheme was able to take in this case, that Sugi is able to take with their carbon footprint analysis. And I can only think it's like, well, what happens if, I don't know, Sugi tells you your carbon footprint and it's not quite right? I think for the banks, they really do worry about what will happen if they get it wrong. Whereas for Sugi, it's a bit like, well, we'll fix it. If we got it wrong for you, you know, we'll fix it but it doesn't stop them wanting to share that in the first place. Let me play devil's advocate. The banks are such a crucial part of really every country's economy. Can they afford to take that level of risk? Isn't that dangerous? Doesn't that pose a systemic challenge? Where I sit at the moment, I think the concept of retail banking is actually dead. I think it will take quite a long time to die, but I think it's on its way out. I think we're going to have institutional banks 
that will provide products and services at an institutional level. And then there'll be a whole plethora of companies leveraging those products to service to consumers. I really do think the world as we know it has already changed forever. We just haven't quite seen it yet. Let's switch gears to the other side of the equation. The consumer, the user, the regular person who requires banking services. In the past, you've been one of the staunchest defenders of customer ownership of their financial data. Can you elaborate on your feelings towards that relationship between people and their data? I am a huge advocate of people having control over their data, but it's very important that people have control over their money. Money in this day and age is actually really data, isn't it? I haven't used cash for that, but it must be nearly two years. I just, I just don't need it. So by definition, that means it's all data, isn't it really? Data-led. The issue I have more fundamentally before we even hit this I realized that it really isn't possible for 90% of the consumers to understand what financial products and services they're actually buying. It's not because the consumer doesn't want to know. It's not because they don't care. It's just not possible for them to be able to evaluate or digest easily what they're buying, what they could buy, or what might be more appropriate or less appropriate. It's just not possible. I kind of explain it in an easy way to say that when you go into a shop to buy a raincoat to keep you dry, I mean, there's just so many, you know, long, short, with hoods, without hoods, uh, showerproof versus waterproof, huge amount of choice. But no matter what happens, once you walk out of the store or once you've got, finished your online shopping and you've got your coat, you'll have bought and what I will have bought could be very different. But the great thing is, is that you will know why you've bought what you've bought. You'll know what it will and won't do when you wear it. And, and so will I. And it's an informed decision that we're happy with. And that was what I felt was missing from financial services, this ability for a consumer to fairly easily digest what they're buying, whether it's right for them or not, what it will do once they've got it, and how it will work and operate, how it will protect them, where it won't protect them. It's never sat well with me. So, of course, roll forward to open banking and suddenly being able to put in the hands of the consumer a level of insight that's immediate so that they can make more informed decisions was just, for me, incredibly motivating. When looking to generate value from open banking, start with the needs of the customer. Many banks have already adopted a customer-centric focus, but their view of the customer is all too often limited, including only what they know, but not what others know. Enter open banking, which makes bringing accounts together from multiple institutions much easier, cheaper, and more secure. Suddenly, banks, as well as their fintech rivals, have started to expand their view of the customer, understanding them in new ways and meeting new needs. 
To date, the fintechs have been more successful than the banks in generating real value through financial innovation. According to Sam, this has to do with their appetite for risk. Whereas banks are afraid to share solutions they fear might be wrong, fintechs share what they have and aim to improve it quickly, based on feedback directly from their customers. These feedback loops between fintechs and their customers often create a sense of community, not only improving the fintechs, but creating customers who expect their banks to listen to them. In response, banks must find a way to balance the risk of such open dialogue with its value in improving their products and building trust. For banks, a big part of building trust means being more transparent with the products and services they offer. Because putting the customer first means making sure they understand what they are buying, even if that means less revenue, or even if it sends them to a different bank. Today, the standards are beginning to spread beyond just retail activity to other kinds of financial instruments, like investments, insurance, pensions, and mortgages. As we move from open banking to open finance. Recasting value, risk, and trust is becoming more important by the day. The Berlin Group in Germany has started an open finance initiative looking to enhance their next-gen PSD2 SPECTA support. Not just enhanced payments, but new types of accounts like savings and securities. Brazil recently launched open insurance, APIs. What happens when we start to go from open banking to open finance? The ability to really genuinely, holistically understand the consumer from the product provider's perspective means that they can add an, an incredible amount of value that is also safe to do so. So going back to the risk element that we talked about you know, earlier in this conversation, it de-risks the more that you can know about the customer, the safer the advice, guidance, or input that you give them, insight that you give them is. You just take a mortgage that you, you sell to me. You know, I, I take out a mortgage on day one, you know, age 30. They've got to check all the way through, given my income, given my property value, given the amount of money I have paid off the mortgage or not. All of that has to be factored in and checked to make sure that every year I've got the best mortgage product for me that is most suitable for what I need. You cannot do that without technology and you won't be able to do it without the data about the people that you're selling these products and services to. Can you imagine if you had a mortgage provider when you had your first child as your household that spotted the fact that there'd been a drop in income and they actually came up and said, so you've been great. You've paid your mortgage beautifully for the last eight years and your property values increased. And actually, you know, we're just going to give you an extra two years on your term. And that's going to mean that you can take a six-month repayment holiday because actually it looks like you could do with that. Would you like that? I mean, I'd fall off my chair if any mortgage provider did that to anyone I know or myself. But that's the world we're heading into with open finance. Do you think it's fair to say that consumers are skeptical of anything presented to them by banks? 
I don't think that there is a mistrust of the banks at a fundamental level. I think where the, the loss has been is that I don't believe many consumers would think that a bank has their back. That's where I think we've lost our way in this world. And it's not just the banks. I mean, I think in general, financial services, I don't think the consumer would really feel that the world of financial services has my back. They've got me covered. I think, to be fair to the consumer, I, I think they're right. I don't think the financial services companies have really had the customer at the very heart. It's about how they make money and not necessarily factoring in the best outcomes for the customer in that journey. So I don't think banks are mis mistrusted at a fundamental level, do you? It's an interesting question, right? This fundamental trust. I think that banks are relatively trusted compared to other players, but I think it also varies region to region, demographic to demographic. But let me turn it back to you, Sam, and ask, what about fintechs? Do they have our back? Do you think they have some advantage or perhaps a disadvantage when it comes to this question of trust? So I think the fintechs, which are well-supported, wouldn't be well-supported if they didn't have the trust of the people that are using them. They actually start with millions of customers. And I think what gets forgotten is the reason they've got millions of customers, especially on their online banking apps, is basically because they get paid into those accounts. And then they actually need to pay from those accounts to go from one month to the next. So it's a slight cover, if you like, for the appetite for the customer with the bank. Whereas if you think about a fintech, they start from zero. They have none of that. Their first customer is is because they trust them, value what they're being given, and have gone, in effect, out of their way to be a customer. So there's a difference, isn't there? Isn't there some risk-reward dynamic happening here? Is it possible that people are signing up to fintechs not because they trust them, but because they see a level of value that banks do not give them. And they're willing to do business with someone that they perhaps do not trust as much to get that increased value. They're willing to take on that risk. Do you think there's something to that? You've only got to look at the Facebook revenues that doubled, trebled, right through the, the unraveling and exposing of their data leaks in terms of how people's data was being abused, misused through all of that shenanigans that went on not that long ago. But did it stop any consumer with a ferocious appetite or businesses from advertising on Facebook? It just didn't. In fact, if you look at their revenue streams, I think it doubled and trebled at the same time all of that was happening. So my view is, is that the consumer wants convenience, wants the value exchange. And for most consumers, not all, but for most consumers, they're too busy. They're too busy to worry about the intricacies and the nuances of security and where their data might be going. You know, they get very blasé when when a great value exchange is offered to them. You can see that even with things that are more constrained. I mean, I don't know how many people can relate to this, but when you do get a mortgage and you get all the terms and conditions associated with it, I'm sure some people read them. I don't think everyone reads them, but part of that is because you can't change them. I mean, are you going to go back to your 
your bank and say, I'd like this clause in section 7.2, you know, change a little bit because it's a bit mean. It's not quite fair. No, because you want the house, don't you? And you don't want to lose the house to anyone else. I mean, you're already thinking about moving in. And I think that's what we're forgetting a bit in that in the value exchange that can be provided. So long as the value exchange is strong, consumers will do all sorts of crazy things in terms of appreciating that value exchange. I'd like to think that the world that we're moving into with GDPR and and all the rise of different regulation in terms of consumers that we've got regulated products and services will actually do that, but in a way that is also right for the customer, which we know from the past we haven't been that good at doing. Fair value exchange. Is that essentially the idea of trading my data for the chance to gain some benefits, some time or money? Most of us use Google or Waze in some kind of sat-nav on our phones to get anywhere these days. I mean, even walking around in London, it's easier to get the map out. I don't pay anything for it. And I know they're using that data in a way that benefits Google, that's for sure. Would I like the option to be able to pay for it and not have them use that data? Yes, possibly. I would personally like that. Would most people like that? No, they're quite happy just to use it for free and not worry too much about where all that data is going. But is it a fair value exchange? I haven't used a London A to Z for a long time and I'm not going back to it, am I? So is it a fair value exchange? Yes. I mean, I think it is, isn't it? Fair value exchange. The simple notion that I am willing to share with you as long as you give me something back in return. Most of us are well aware that we share location data and search terms with the likes of Google, but we're willing to do so because we get something back, like valuable search results or sometimes even valuable ads. So how does this translate into banking? Well, imagine a bank account that's constantly trying to reduce your fees or one that's looking for rewards programs that match your spending. What about a mortgage that's always looking for a better rate across all banks, not just one? Such is the world enabled by open finance. As open banking standards are extended to cover lots of different financial products, the view of the customer becomes more and more clear and the offers get better and better. However, we once again see that with the generation of new kinds of value come questions of trust. Will customers trust that the banks really have their backs? What about the fintechs? Sam reminds us that while the big incumbents have the trust that comes with history, fintechs had to earn their trust, customer by customer. The generation of value, the acceptance of new risks, and the promotion of trust ultimately go hand in hand. The more data is added to the ecosystem, the more amplified this cycle becomes. We are moving, in Sam's words, from the one-dimensional open banking to the two-dimensional open finance to the three-dimensional open data.
Open banking is 1D, open finance is 2D, and open data is 3D. What do you mean by that? Well, so if you take PSD2 open banking, it's current accounts and credit cards. So brilliant. I mean, we get to see a lot of spending data that way. So we do get a really good view of the customer, but we have very little insight from that data into the actual properties that they might own, the investments that they might have, the savings they might have. Because unless you're actually paying into those savings account regularly, you can't even see whether they've got a savings account. And you certainly don't know what value it's got in terms of your pensions or your property that you know you get married and you've got a flat that you, you kept and you've got it rented out. You might see the rental income coming into that account somewhere, but you will have no idea about its value. That's where I think open finance takes it to 2D. So now at open finance level, we now know the value of that property. We will know the the savings, the pensions, assets, and amounts that you've got. So we add that two-dimensional view. So we have a much better picture of you and your assets and liabilities in a holistic sense. And then let's get really exciting and go to 3D where I can actually bring in my Google map data, throw that in the mix. And then we can really see, well, for Sam, you know, for me, how do we delight Sam? How do we offer Sam products and services she's going to have a ferocious appetite for and want to pay for? That's where I think that the 3D element, taking into account the utility data, my electricity meter readings, all of that rich data that then genuinely gives you an incredibly well-rounded picture of me and what I might like, what I'm definitely not going to like, what's a waste of time putting in front of me, and what, what actually I'm going to respond well to. I mean, you've, only, you've got to think a little bit further forward with these cookie laws going and no one being followed around the internet anymore. How are we going to, to receive adverts that we like and want to see? I mean, we all want to consume products and services. That's not changing. But how are we going to see products and services that are relevant and that I actually quite like to buy? That's moving to the world of influencers. The whole world we're in is shifting. And so that's why I I kind of talk about 1D, 2D, and 3D. Open data discussions generally cover the movement of consent-based data sharing to other sectors of the economy beyond finance. The CDR in Australia, for example, starts to get into open energy, open telecom, et cetera. But Facebook and company are really a step beyond that, a world that some call open X. Is there a 4D? Is there something beyond open data where these same principles start to collide with social? From the recent work that we saw on one of the dating apps, the staggering amount of data as a result of the dating app that people had been using, all of it would be great to be able to have available for consumer, the person who's generated the data in the first place, just to be able to use it to good effect, or at least just a bare minimum to make their life a bit more convenient or easy. This building of a high fidelity picture of customers by bringing in multiple sources of data, is this what Money Hub does? So it's definitely what Money Hub has been set up to do from day one, is about actually putting all of your data, it doesn't matter where it's from, you know, the minute you can get a machine-readable feed from Google, we'll be pulling that in. We're agnostic about 
where the data comes from, the source of it. It's about enabling that data to be put under your your umbrella, under your wing, so that you can then choose who you want to see that data or share that data with and how much of it. I mean, that's the exciting part that I think people forget. So you can have your all your data pulled together, even if that service is provided to you by your bank or by a mortgage provider or even a pension provider. It doesn't really matter. In any company can be your provider. The way our platform works enables you to only share certain amounts of data with that provider as well. So to give you an example, I might share my spend on hobbies and eating out, but I don't want to share any of my other data. And the reason I'm willing to share my hobbies because they're going to try and help me sweep some money into my pension account as a basis of some relationships they've got, which might, might cross over with my hobbies and my um, eating out. I'm fine with that. I actually don't care who sees where I eat out and how much I spend on that. And I don't mind them seeing what hobbies I'm, I'm doing at all. And it's brilliant for providers as well. Just think about the fact that there are many out there that need to find out that you've, if you can afford this rental property, they actually don't want to know how much you earn. Actually, all they really want to know, do you earn more than £15,000 a year? Because if you do, you qualify for this rental property. You might actually earn £37,000 a year. And they they don't need to know that. And with the new mode of operation that we have on our platform, they won't know that. All they'll get is a tick. Sam Seaton earns more than £15,000 a year. Good. They can move on and do their job. So I just think this is the world that we need to go into. My search history, you know, take that. Would I share with my bank or with my mortgage provider and in order to get better value? And, and what wouldn't I share? And curate what I'm comfortable sharing with who and for what return. So it's not about sharing everything with everyone at all. This ability to control not only what people see and who you share it with, but how much of that data that you share. That's the beauty of where we're heading. Sam, where can our guests find out more about you and your work with MoneyHub? Well, moneyhub.com is the best place to start. I'm on LinkedIn. I mean, people can can ping me there. That's a very easy way to get hold of me. My email, sam.seaton at moneyhub.com. Genuinely very open to, to discussions and helping people to understand more about this new world that we are entering. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Open banking is just the beginning of something much larger. It begins the process of training people to think of their data as an asset, not just to be protected, but to be used, the kind of asset they can control and share and sell. And when they do sell it, they can make sure they're getting something fair in return. Thinking of data this way transcends any particular sector of the economy. As people become more and more used to this way of thinking, they will expect this kind of data utility across all sectors, from finance to telecom to energy to healthcare and beyond. Indeed, 
Many open banking standards have already moved well in this direction. Australia's consumer data right already qualifies as 3D. Starting with banking is an important first step. After all, if we're going to build these open ecosystems for fair value exchange, we have to be able to send payments and to consent to share our data. So it is these fundamental building blocks that open banking aims to put in place. As the standards grow to encompass more and more data, banks will remain at the heart of the economic exchange. But to survive, they must learn to operate in an open ecosystem, one where they have no choice but to put the customer first and to treat them fairly. Banks will always be expected to provide value, but now they must be more upfront about the risks and more open to dialogue as they aim to position themselves as trusted advisors. In the open world, this challenge only grows. Banks must learn to revisit their core competencies and ask themselves honestly what it really means to be customer-centric. The next step is even harder. Striving to find a balance between three often opposing forces. Providing real value, accepting new risks, and building trust with their customers. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.